0: As we begin here this morning, I wanted to just mention again my thanks to Pastor Steve and to the session for the privilege, the real privilege that it is for me to do our Advent series again this year. It's been rewarding for me personally to put these sermons together for our worship. Advent reminds us about waiting and anticipating the building of our hearts towards a richer experience of Christmas, and one of my goals has been Uh, for us over these four weeks to put us on, on the trajectory that Luke gives us from foretelling and prediction to the arrival of Jesus to the proclamation of that arrival and then now today to the celebration and worship that comes as a result that we find in the story. The king has arrived as he has promised, as he was promised. The news has reached us and our response also is to celebrate and worship. Like those in the story, as we've been working through this theme this year, like those in the story, we're unlikely ones, we're ordinary ones, who have been changed, too, by this extraordinary event. This morning, we're considering two characters, Simeon and Anna, who Luke includes at the end of the birth narratives. They're ordinary people in their own way. They're not famous outside of this account, but they are, and they're also unlikely, I think, to have been included except that the sovereign God had been at work in their lives and brought them to the temple at this moment to meet Jesus. So we'll look at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Uh, it's on page 725. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, there's a sermon outline as well on pages uh, 10 and 11 in the bulletin to help you follow along. Here God's word. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was eighty four. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And thus far, God's word for us. Let's pray. Father, indeed this morning we are thankful to have a chance to to gather and to hear your word, to see what you've done in the lives of others, that we can read of it and that we can be encouraged, and that we can see how you have kept Your promises. We pray that you would bless now our time together. We need your help to understand your word. We need your help to live by it. We need your help to, to apply it to our lives. We ask that you would be the one teaching and guiding us in these moments, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I think about, I was thinking about waiting, someone who had to wait a really long time for something as I was thinking about this, uh, this story. And um, what occurred to me, of course, is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is the best of the four movies, of course. And um, if you remember the scene, the scene at the end of the movie, the sort of climactic scene, is Indy has to, he, the search is for the Holy Grail which was the cup that, uh, the legend of the cup that Jesus drank from uh, when he did the uh, Last Supper with the disciples. And the legend is that, that all who would then drink of it would have eternal life. And so near the end of the movie, they get to the place where the cup is, and Indy has to pass these tests, these three tests to get to the chamber where there's the cup. And, um, you know, Indy, of course, is this sort of hardened cynic, this History and science over myth kind of guy And has to pass this test of faith So, you know, there's this interesting spiritual dynamic Going going on inside Indiana Jones He gets into the chamber and he finds a very old man And the story goes that this was the last of three brothers Who had found the grail during one of the crusades In the Middle Ages And this man had been left for some 800 or more years To be the guardian of the grail and at first in the movie you think you think you know you see the man he's sort of hunched over you wonder is he alive or is he dead and he and he sees Indy and he gets up and he and he gets ready to to fight he realizes he can't fight because he's too old and too you know sort of feeble he can't even raise his sword but then there's the scene where he looks at Indy and he and he sees he sees his face and he says I knew you'd come and something about I I think it's related to this faith experience that Indiana Jones had had. He knew the knight had this kind of quiet confidence. He had this kind of, this hope that had kept him going for 800 years that someone was coming, that he would recognize who it was when he arrived. At first he didn't, at first he thought he had to fight, but then he saw him and he said, oh, I knew you'd come, and I've been waiting. And then, of course, the story goes on, and it's, and it's great, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> but I think that's, that sets the scene for me of this, of this story, of people who say, when they see this baby, I knew you'd come. We've been waiting, and I knew that you would come. We'll look at the text as we go. We'll pick up... Um, The narrative, a number of weeks now after the birth of Jesus in in verse 22. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Luke seems to be summarizing two or perhaps three different Old Testament ceremonies together in these verses. First, Leviticus 12 describes the purification rituals for the mother after childbirth, which which includes a time of waiting 40 days after the birth of a male child, and then the woman was to go to the temple in Jerusalem and offer a lamb for a burnt offering and a dove for a sin offering. And if the family couldn't afford a lamb and a dove, then they could use two doves or two pigeons, which is the case here according to verse 24. So that's one of the ceremonies is the purification. Another is the dedication of the firstborn to the Lord. It's described in Exodus 13 and Numbers 18. The idea from these passages is to to memorialize and to help the people of Israel remember the 10th plague That came upon Egypt in the Passover, the death of the firstborn, and so this idea of the Passover is now that the firstborn of both animals and people was the Lord's, and firstborn sons had a specific redemption price, which was set at five shekels, except for the tribe of Levi. So, so as the firstborn son, then Jesus was to be redeemed by his parents at the temple. Luke doesn't mention the five shekel offering and some have speculated that in addition to these two ceremonies there's a third thing going on here actually which wouldn't have required the five shekel offering which is the idea of that Jesus was presented to the Lord it says in verse 22 and we see in the example of Hannah and Samuel this idea of a mother dedicating their child to the Lord presenting him to the Lord and in, in Hannah's case that meant that after Samuel was weaned, he was given to uh, Eli to raise and grew up there in the temple. Now, of course, Jesus didn't remain at the temple and lived with his family, but there were a number of ways in the Old Testament that, were, that children were dedicated to the Lord. And I think there might be something of that that's in view here, that, that Mary and Joseph, of course, realize that Jesus isn't just an ordinary firstborn son. And they do the things required of that, but also they dedicate him to the Lord from birth, knowing uh, at least to some degree of who, who he is as the Son of God. So we, all of that makes it clear that Mary and Joseph are very faithful. They're faithful to do what the law required, and even to go beyond it, probably, in dedicating their son to the Lord. So we get that picture of the family, and as they're arriving, actually even it seems before all of this happened, they're greeted in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. And Simeon takes him into his arms and continues. Simeon is likely not a priest. He seems like an ordinary layman. He's one who's righteous and devout, highly esteemed by Luke. And clearly, Simeon was great in this sense. His uh, esteem by Luke is because of the work of the Spirit in his life. Did you hear that? Three times in these three verses, it particularly describes the way that the Spirit was at work in Simeon. The Spirit was upon him. The Spirit had revealed something to him, something sort of extraordinary, and the Spirit had led him to come to the temple just at that moment. So here was an ordinary kind of man, a godly man, one who was full of the Spirit. Luke tells us that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the word here that's consolation means comfort or help and I think it's really interesting. I didn't know this until I was working on the sermon. It's the same word, uh, a, a variation, a different form, but the same word that John uses in, in his gospel in chapters 14 to 16 when Jesus is describing the, the job, the work, the, the title, the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, right, is the comforter, the helper, the consoler, the advocate. It's the same idea. And so Jesus, on that scene in the night of the Last Supper and his betrayal, Jesus says that the Spirit, it's good for the disciples, that the Spirit will come and will take these specific roles in the lives of God's people after Jesus ascends to heaven. So I think we see sort of a progression here that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the comfort. He's waiting for the help. He's waiting for God to send an advocate. And for him, that's fulfilled in this Messiah, And then there's a progression that Jesus says, after I leave, it's good for you because I'm going to send that consolation, that consoler, that helper, that comforter for you. I think that's uh, to be here, to live inside of you after I go up into heaven. So I think there's something profound about this idea of what Simeon was really waiting for, fulfilled in the Messiah. And then after Jesus ascends to heaven, fulfilled in the lives of God's people through the work of the Spirit, we get the sense here that Simeon is living in his own advent. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel with all of the devout. He knows that he and all of his people are in need of this kind of comfort and help, which are only found in the coming of the Messiah. And we get this note here that he's been given special revelation that he won't die until he sees the Lord's Christ. Let's look now at verse 28 then. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people, Israel. So it means prayer is a spirit-inspired prophecy that continues through uh, verses 34 and 35. Historically, it's called the nunc dimittis. I don't really speak Latin, but that's Latin for now you dismiss. And the idea of it is it's this response of one who is fully satisfied. The picture is of a servant or slave who is released from his duty. One commentator said it this way, Simeon is like the watcher who can leave his assigned post because the anticipated event has come. Simeon's role in God's world is accomplished in this moment when he sees the child. God had promised, had, had done for Simeon what he had promised. Simeon is seeing in his eyes, in this baby, the salvation of God made known before all people. He'd been living in his own advent, waiting, watching for the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to him, which was wrapped up, of course, in the promise that God has made to all of his people. And Simeon's faith has become sight in this moment, and he's satisfied. And sometimes I think we hear people say something like, now I can die happy. I've reached my goal. I won the championship. I won the gold medal. I've finally made it on my dream vacation I advanced in my career to reach the highest place. There's this idea of, I've, I've made it, my hard work has paid off, and now I can die happy. I'm satisfied. And, you know, I don't know if people really mean it. Um, would they really be happy to die right then? Maybe. Maybe the rest of life is downhill right from there. But in a way, it seems like what they mean to say is, I've made it, look what I've done. Look where, look where I'm at. I'm, I'm satisfied. And Simeon is saying some, a variation of that. But he's not saying, look what I've done. He's saying, look what God has done. My God has done it. He has come through. And he has given me this amazing blessing. I've been waiting, and not always patiently, and not always full of faith. And the enemy has tempted me to doubt and be discouraged. But God has vindicated himself in doing all that he said he would do. And because he has done this, I can trust him now to take me home. My life is over. The salvation of God that I see in this baby is more valuable than my life. And in seeing it, I'm ready to go. I think there's something very powerful in this real-life illustration. On the one hand, is all of the potential days yet in this life for Simeon? We don't know how old he is. It doesn't say. And on the other, is God's salvation realized? And I think Simeon has his own like to live is Christ and die is gain moment right here. And he says, God, you can take me home because you've been vindicated. And I was waiting and you came through. He concludes with this sweeping statement about God's salvation, that Jesus is the light for the Gentiles... For all of the people of the world and for the glory of God's people, Israel. We get the, the sense here, this is sort of for the first time, we get the sense that, that, that Jesus' work is not confined to Israel, but is for all people of the world and global. Into a dark world, here comes the light. And, and Simeon is also making the point that this is the glory of Israel. Israel. This is the culmination of God's work in his nation from Abraham in Genesis 12 to right here. All of it was moving towards the arrival of this baby. There are clear echoes here from Isaiah 60. We don't have time to go into it right now, but that famous passage, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Maybe Simeon had that particular passage in mind as he was thinking, as he was saying uh, these words. These words. The account continues, Simeon also gives us this note of foreboding in verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled about what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There's no incarnation without suffering. As we've seen already, and continue to see in the story, Simeon gives us an idea of that this kind of suffering will particularly engulf Mary. Commentators are kind of divided about what this means. There are a lot of nuance here of, of what this possibly could mean. I think it refers to Mary among the witnesses at the cross. We get the idea from the Gospels that Mary was there, um, and while most of the disciples have fled, Mary stayed. And watched it unfold and suffered only as a mother could in seeing that great and horrible injustice. Simeon's prophecy also makes clear that the salvation that's accomplished in this child will not be universally accepted. We know that Jesus presents two paths. His life and his message divide the people of Israel. Some will rise as a result of his advent, and some will fall be crushed and the difference is the response to the sign people will oppose the sign of Jesus and the response to him will make clear the state of their hearts he will expose sin and doubt and jealousy and contempt for the things of God and legalism and self-righteousness and all that he exposes and he will force all who hear his message to show their true colors Right. And for those who, uh, whose dark hearts have been exposed, there are two responses. One is to ignore, to wish it away, to disbelieve, to try to kill him. The other is to repent and to move towards the light, knowing of one's need and trusting in the kindness and mercy given to us in our God, from our God in Christ. Two responses. Some rise, some fall. Not because they all, not, they all have dark hearts. But the question is how do they respond to the sign of who Jesus is? In repentance or by disbelieving? As the story can kind of concludes here, we, we meet another faithful witness in verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna is a woman that we know nothing else about, though Luke gives us some very interesting details of her life. He calls her a prophetess. Her father and her tribe are listed, which is quite unusual for a woman of that day. So perhaps her father was famous or she was somehow well known and Luke wants to identify her more specifically. We also learn that she was literally very old in her many days. She had been married for seven years and then widowed, living the rest of her life unmarried, giving herself fully to the service of God, worshiping, fasting, and praying at the temple night and day. The, there's a note here in our NIV Bibles, and some translate it differently about, her, about this uh, idea of 84 years, how old she really is. I think the clearest way to read it is that she remained a widow for 84 years after her husband died. I think that's the, the simplest way to read it. So that would put her at about 105 if she was um, married at 14 or 15 at a typical age in that day. You know, alternatively, the, the NIV here says that she was a widow until 84. Um, the time of this event, she was 84 years old. In any case, um, she's a remarkable person. Luke presents her as a model of Christian discipleship, faithful and devout, dedicated to the Lord. She, like Simeon, was living in her own advent, wasn't she? She, too, was waiting for the Messiah to come. And we get the sense from the fact that she was another herald for all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, that is, the redemption of the nation. She was waiting for that redemption, and she saw it, and she pointed to it, to all who would listen. What do we learn from these pair of witnesses this day? They're presented to us as faithful. They're sort of a matching pair, man and woman, and we see that in Luke's Gospel a number of times where Luke gives us both men and women testifying to the truthfulness of who Jesus is. They're both devout, they're both ordinary, they're both given a place of prominence in the story. They're both sharing the dreams and the desires and the hopes of the people of God. They're the picture of the faithful remnant. They believed, they waited, and then they saw with their eyes the fulfillment of the promises of God to his people. They follow the trajectory of Luke's narrative, waiting, seeing, proclaiming, worshiping, and celebrating. They joined with the shepherds and the villagers of Bethlehem and all others who saw and participated in these amazing things. For Simeon and Anna, faith became sight, and they were satisfied, and it was enough for them. I think it's a beautiful picture for us to consider There's a bit of a contrast here. Often we read in the gospel accounts, in the ministry of Jesus, the pattern is that one sees. They see a sign. They see a miracle. They see, they have an encounter with Jesus and then they believe. For Simeon and Anna, the pattern is opposite. They believe and they wait and watch faithfully and then they saw with their eyes and they praised God and they proclaimed the news. And in this way, I think their pattern is like ours. They lived in an advent, a time of waiting for an arrival, and then the waiting was over in this magnificent day for them, meaning Jesus at the temple. We're like them in that sense, believing and waiting, except that we haven't fully seen with our eyes, have we? They were waiting for the first advent of Christ. We're waiting for the second. The pattern is the same. We're waiting for God to to vindicate our trust in Him and our faith. And so we call out, don't we? We call out for Him to return. We call out for Him to reveal Himself. We call out for Him to make everything right again. We join in with all of the creation groaning in this broken world, don't we? We're weeping over the brokenness that's around us, saddened by tragedies big and small, Shalom is broken. Things are not the way they should be. For us, faith means living without seeing with our eyes. And I think that's a great challenge for us, isn't it? To wait actively. To not give in to despair or apathy or uncertainty. To trust God when things are good. To trust him when they're bad. What is our, our hope? Well, Simeon and Anna saw the Messiah with their own eyes. Even they didn't see it all, right? They didn't see the miracles. They didn't see the cross. They didn't see the empty tomb. All they saw really was a baby. How did they know this was God's promised one? How did they see clearly the full picture of salvation and all that it meant in a six-week-old baby? The answer, I think, clearly and specifically mentioned here in this story is that the Spirit told them, Explicitly moving Simeon to that place, to see beyond his eyes, to see beyond the baby, to see all that he is, all that he represents, the promises of God fulfilled here in this child. So we also have access to the same kind of true sight, don't we? And even more in the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, For all who believe in Christ, the down payment, the first fruits, are ours in the coming of the Holy Spirit. God is present with us in our longing and our doubts, in our trusting and in our waiting, in our unmet expectations, and in the multiplication of sadnesses in this world. God has come near to us in Christ, and God comes nearer in His Spirit, filling our hearts, showing us what's true, convincing us. That these things are true and that they're worth everything. And that this child changes everything. And we cling to that idea of Jesus saying to Thomas, Blessed indeed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's the kind of sight that we have. That's the kind of tension that we live in. If there's any true hope for us and our world this Advent season, we find it here in the child. Listen again to the descriptions, the summary of all that was said about this child that we've seen so far in these four sermons. From Gabriel to Mary, we learned that he will be great, the son of the Most High. He will sit on the throne of David and will rule over the house of Jacob forever. He will be called the Son of God. From the angels to the shepherds, we learned that he's the Savior, Christ the Lord, born this day. From Simeon, through the Holy Spirit, we learn that he's God's salvation, prepared and revealed to the Gentiles and the glory of God's people Israel. From Anna, we learn that all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel find that redemption here. Our Christmas must begin with the child. He's offered to you. He offers himself and all of the gifts that he brings to you. And some will rise and some will fall Because of this message. And so then I ask you, who is he to you? Is your life have you placed your life in his in his hands? Are you trusting him? Believing in him? That's the question that should should provoke us, should prompt us, should nudge us in Advent. Who is this child? Who is he to me? How is my life different because of his coming? It's the first idea there. The second is that the waiting of Simeon and Anna, the great response of theirs to seeing the promises fulfilled, also speaks strongly to us who are waiting. Waiting isn't an easy thing. It seems like it might be, but it isn't. Biblical waiting is an ever-present hope-placing kind of activity waiting requires us to be pushing back against our doubts and fears and the whispers of the enemy. Because he would tell us that we're alone in this world. He would tell us there's no hope. He would tell us that you can sort of coast through life not really getting all that concerned or upset about these things and this story. We have to push back against that. Don't we? We do so as individuals. We do so through prayer. We also do so as a community. Waiting is a community activity. Right? We need the voices of one another to make clear to us that there's more going on than we can see. That God is to be trusted. That the cynics aren't right. That our hope is in the best place. As we think about Advent and our waiting and the second Advent that we're waiting for, we recognize also... Christ is waiting too. He's waiting to return. He's waiting to come back in an extraordinary way in a day like no other. He snuck into the world in unlikely ways through unlikely people over 2,000 years ago. The promise of God fulfilled. He's coming back, fully revealed, not shrouding his glory. All will see and know and God will vindicate Himself. And we look forward to that day, don't we? When our faith will become sight, too. On that day, we'll know that the waiting was worth it. And we'll have a testimony, like Simeon and Anna and others throughout biblical history a testimony of God's faithfulness, of celebration, and worship of Him. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful this morning, that our hope is real, and that you have done that in our hearts through your spirit, that you've given us promises and that you've shown us that they're, they're true, and that we can trust you. We pray that you would help us to trust you with things in our lives that are hard, help us to give our doubts to you, help us not to run from you, but to run toward you, when life is not easy. Help us to wait faithfully. Help us to do so as a community, encouraging one another in your promises, and who you are, and how you've given your life for us. Jesus, we thank you again this day for coming, for entering into our world, for making all of this possible, that we would be blessed immeasurably. We praise you and we thank you. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.